And our sermon text tonight come from the book of Mark, um, chapter 10, starting at verse 2 and going through verse 12. Listen now for the word of God. Some Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Friends, this too is the word of God. <clears throat> so, this is the second time in my life that I have actually preached from the lectionary. Every other um, time I've preached, it's been kind of in the context of a sermon series, and we've, we've gotten to pick a little bit of where we were going and what we were talking about. And um, In both cases, when I've preached from the lectionary, I've kind of found myself on these Sundays that have four really difficult texts. And um, if y'all have been coming recently, you've noticed that a number of our Sundays have have offered some very difficult words, um, be it from the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in pretty consistently, or from James, or from some of these other texts that we preach. They are, they are not easy. Um, and so what I would like to do before we get into this is just take a moment to center ourselves and to pray and to invite God to open our ears to how the Spirit might be speaking to us. Um, so would y'all pray with me? Lord, open our ears and our hearts and our minds that we might hear your true word even in this text. That we may be faithful stewards and disciples as you have called us to be. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I, I went to meet up with an old friend for dinner. Um, we had had a falling out a few years back and have never really recovered from it. But both of us valued the friendship that we remembered enough to feel like it was worth the time and, and one more kind of shot at reviving this relationship. Um, since our falling out, James, which is, is not my friend's real name, but it's the name that we'll use this evening, has gotten married. And, and since the marriage, James uh, has discovered that marriage is just significantly more difficult than he ever thought it was going to be, um, and more difficult than anything that he had ever done before. And it was so hard, in fact, that very early in the course of our conversation, he disclosed clearly, um, just how seriously he is, and I've struggled with this word because it's not desiring, but uh, 
I just don't know a better word for it, how, how seriously he's wanting to get out of his marriage. He's feeling trapped by it. He wants the marriage to come to an end. Um, and it's, it's just heartbreaking. Um, in a world where half of all marriages are ending in divorce, though, it would seem that the conversation wouldn't be all that necessary. Uh, he was very clearly unhappy to the point that he even would say that he was thinking about cheating on his wife so that it would be easier to end their marriage. And, and you know, so for some of us, we may hear this and say, well, gosh, you probably just need to go ahead and get out of that. Um, but for anybody who's been in a similar situation, you know what a difficult place that is to be in. You can admit maybe that you were careless in getting into something to begin with. You can admit that possibly you made a mistake. Um, You can kind of justify it by saying, we're going to serve both of our lives by untying ourselves from one another. But it's just hard. (laughs) And, And James and his wife have given so much time and effort already, and they're still married, but they have given so much time and effort that I, don't want, I, I, I want to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page in understanding that this is not something that they are taking lightly. Um, it's not something that anybody who's involved in their lives is taking lightly. It's, it's something that they've really put a lot of time into, and, and out of that time they have really reaped some misery and pain and sin. And... If we don't acknowledge those things from the beginning, we just miss the reality of this text and of the idea of divorce. And so I want to kind of name that. But, but James has another issue that's, um, that's really factoring into his carefulness in all of this. And, and that other issue is that James is a Christian, and he is a particularly well-read Christian. And James has read our text for tonight. And he's read all of the parallel texts that have the, kind of the same story with slightly different details in Matthew and in 1 Corinthians, and, and he's read probably all of the Old Testament references that are made in this text. He's just a really well-read guy, and he has become convinced that passages like ours are kind of a clear commandment from Jesus, that under no circumstances can you get a divorce, with maybe the only possible exception being if there has been unfaithfulness. And in Matthew's version of this saying, Matthew kind of allows for unfaithfulness, but, but Mark's text doesn't. <laughs> and I don't really know where James stands on that, but that's not the point so much. Um, the point is that James is stuck. He wants to get out, but he doesn't know how. Uh, as our conversation at the dinner table moved from friendly to catching up about life and, and marriage and um, the difficulties that were coming along with that and work, and then finally to theology, James's anger really started to come to the surface. And it culminated in his giving me a kind of a test. He was, in some ways, demanding that I prove my pastoral worth, but I, I think he was probably also um, just masking some of his pain by, by going this direction. Uh, And he said to me, Will, I hate my life, and I want to get a divorce. He said, I I think about cheating on my wife so that it'll be easier for me, but I don't believe that the teachings of Jesus allow for divorce. Tell me what to do. 
And he said, be my pastor, which was difficult because I said, I'm not your pastor. But that's where the conversation really took its downward turn. And as you can imagine, it went pretty quickly downhill from there, and it ended with James kind of slinging a few choice words my way and getting up from the table and uh, walking out of the restaurant. The, the irony didn't really hit me until later, but it felt like that was kind of the night on which James and I had finalized um, a very drawn-out process of a kind of divorce. I sat at what had been our dinner table without saying a word and, and watched him <clears throat> walk out of this door. I wondered if he would come back in and apologize or, or if he might call on his drive home, but he didn't, and neither did I. I didn't anticipate this tonight, but when I was telling my friends about it, I also couldn't control myself, and I wept. Um, because even to approach the end of a loving relationship, friendship, you know, much, much less so than a covenant marriage, is a terrible thing. But as any and all of us in this room probably know, it's a very real thing. Um, and in some way or another, we have all been touched by it. If not divorce of someone immediately in our family, we have certainly all been touched by the ending of a relationship that we cherish. I don't necessarily understand all of James's anger that night. Um, what I do know is that somewhere buried in the midst of all of that stuff, he was truly hurting. Uh, his, his heart was broken. Whatever his motivation for asking me, James... James's demand that I answer this question about the permissibility of divorce was coming out of his own life circumstances. Divorce was, was a tragic reality for my friend, even though he was still in his marriage. Um, now, in Mark's telling of our story for today, there's, there's kind of similarly this test that is given, uh, in which a group of people try to get Jesus to take a stance on the permissibility of divorce. We aren't really told anything about the marital status of these men who pose the question, but we are told that they are Pharisees, which means that they are Jews, and, and that their intention is to test Jesus. We also know that there's a live debate going on at this time within Judaism um, about how to rightly interpret a particular passage from the book of Deuteronomy, which I'm going to summarize because it's long, but it basically says, suppose a man gets married to a woman and then, you know, quickly decides that he doesn't, he doesn't like her so much anymore because he found something objectionable in her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce and she goes and marries somebody else and the second man doesn't like her either and so he writes her a certificate of divorce. It's not okay for the first man to marry her again. Uh, let me find this exactly. After the wife has been defiled, is what it says, for that would be abhorrent to the Lord and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you uh, as a possession. So that's kind of the, that's the passage from Deuteronomy that these, these um, Pharisees are debating. And there are two kind of primary schools of thought that are arguing about this passage. And, and what they're arguing, arguing about primarily is how liberally we're allowed to interpret the word objectionable. 
can it be interpreted um, as, uh, well, Rabbi Shammai is one of the rabbis, and, and, and he's the more conservative rabbi, and he says that really the only way that, that we can understand this word objectionable is, is, is unchaste. So the only reason that it can be justified to get a divorce is if your wife has cheated on you. Um, there's another rabbi named Hillel who was the more progressive of the two schools here, and, and he wants to interpret the word objectionable pretty liberally so that a man can justifiably divorce his wife if she, if she burns his dinner one night. And then there's, and that's like really how the argument goes in this, in this thing. It's a little bit crazy that, well, anyway. Most certainly, the Pharisees have been through these arguments over and over, and they know both sides. I mean, if you're, if you are, uh, were ever on the debate team in high school, you know you need to be able to debate both sides of the argument, regardless of where you stand. And these Pharisees certainly had done that. They are teachers of the law. They know how to argue and how to refute both sides, regardless of what they believe, and they hate the attention that Jesus is getting. Maybe Jesus is getting bigger crowds than they are when he teaches. I don't know. But whatever it is, the Pharisees must kind of feel like it's making them look bad. And so they, they decide, I know what we'll do. We'll bait Jesus into taking sides in an argument that we know how to win from either side. Then he won't look so smart and awesome. The text says it a little bit more subtly. It just says that they asked Jesus in order to test him. Now, the Greek word that usually gets translated as test here is the same word that Mark uses in chapter 1 to describe what happens to Jesus in the wilderness right after his baptism. And you probably remember the English translation. It says he was sent into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Tempted, not tested. It could be translated either way. The Pharisees were certainly trying to test Jesus um, presumably to take him down a peg or two to reestablish their own dominance concerning Jewish law and practice. But Jesus was certainly also presented with a temptation here. And as we will see, it's a temptation that he resists really quite brilliantly. Um, but before we get into all of that, I want to just kind of lay out a few facts about New Testament context and divorce and um, stuff that hopefully will be helpful as we frame this whole conversation. And the first thing is, divorce is fairly common in the New Testament times. It's accepted without generating too much, if any, social stigma. Um, secondly, men divorce women significantly more easily than the other way around, which it's a patriarchal society. Men are just kind of the people who have the power. It's easier for them to divorce women than it is the other way around. That's not to say that it couldn't happen, but it was just rare. Um, and, and finally, and probably most importantly, when we are talking about divorce in the first century, what we're really, really talking about is sex and property rights. Um, it is helpful for us to remember the unfortunate reality that in the first century, women were understood as property. So adultery, for instance, would have been understood to be one man defiling the property of another by taking the first man's wife as his own. Uh, the consent of the woman in cases like this really only matters to determine the name of the crime. Um, divorce laws are understood by most people in the first century as existing to protect the economic interest of the men 
and inheritance rights, which obviously relied on knowing the Father's identity. So all signs that we have point to this inquiry from the Pharisees being one that was kind of entirely depersonalized. They aren't coming to Jesus out of their own anguish over a divorce in their own life, as my friend James was, or, or even in the life of anyone they know, most likely it probably wasn't anything that caused too much anguish for these Pharisees. They're talking about divorce rather as an idea, as a law, as something to be debated and interpreted. And, um, and this really terrible institution over which my friend has endured so much pain and misery is reduced by these Pharisees to a topic of discussion through which they might be able to prove themselves superior to someone else. In this case, the someone else is Jesus. It's here, I think, that we really can begin to understand how Jesus is tempted and not just tested in this. And the reason we can understand it is because it is how we are tempted in this conversation as well. We are tempted to take the Pharisees' bait, to get so caught up in debating ideas and in getting our theory right and proving someone else's theory wrong that we forget about the real-life people whose real lives are literally being torn apart whenever a covenant that is entered into with the purest intentions reaches its end. There's simply no rule or law or system of interpretation out there that makes it easier, that mends a broken heart. And when we treat this topic as if there's a right answer and a wrong answer, we trivialize the reality that divorce creates in people's lives. And I would also argue that that hasty judgments function most usually to close the door of the kingdom of God, keeping out the very people whom Jesus has invited to lay their burdens down and to rest. See, people are messy. We can't really be systematized or put in boxes. We feel pain and we act in response to those feelings of pain. We're often unpredictable, even dangerous at times, but ideas are safe. They can be organized into nice little boxes. They can be followed to predictable ends. And most importantly, they can be entirely disconnected from human emotion. Laws are ideas. Now, there's this myth that, as far as I can tell, has been circulating since people have existed, which says that the one who knows no emotion is the strong one. But... That really is only a myth. Um, the truth is actually just the opposite. The one who knows no emotion is simply hiding from reality, scared of what it might do if I let myself experience the wonderful and the terrible fullness of human existence in relationship with another. These Pharisees masquerade as the strong ones who show no emotion because they know no emotion. They, they really only know ideas and laws. But Jesus, as brilliant as he is, kind of exposes their weakness in his response. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here, but he basically says to these Pharisees, it's only because of your total ambivalence 
to real human life that Moses gave you these laws in the first place. But remember that in the beginning, God made real people, men and women. They leave their families. They offer up their independence one to the other in order to become truly and newly one. No human law can undo that. And further, questions about lawfulness and permissibility just kind of miss the whole point. It could be said that one of the primary reasons that Jesus shows up on this earth at all, um, see if you can finish this sentence, actually. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right, to show us its true meaning. What's really interesting is that this, this law from Deuteronomy about which the Pharisees are arguing over and they're trying to trap Jesus with, it really isn't all that concerned with divorce and remarriage. It just kind of assumes that both of those are realities. It's about maintaining the purity of the promised land, which the Israelites at this point in the story are getting ready to inherit. In the context of this law, over which people are arguing and fighting and everything else, divorce and remarriage are really just kind of an example. They're a situation. But they're not the point. The Pharisees have kind of, and they're known for this, they've made a hobby out of interpreting every detail of every law as if there's some award for being more lawful than the law itself. And when we start to meddle around with Scripture as they do in an attempt to find a black and white answer to every possible moral question that we can think of, which is not too far off how the Bible often gets used, we generally miss its point. We as the expression goes, can't see the forest for the trees. Now here, in this case, if we play around with ideas about circumstances under which divorce is justified, we will almost certainly fall into one of two traps. The first is failing to acknowledge the ways that broken relationship in and of itself can really do harm to a family particularly if there is no escape. The second trap that we're in danger of is believing that the right circumstances can make divorce good and forgetting that people always suffer divorce. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, and divorce is the right solution there. But that doesn't make it good. But what we don't need to do, though, is, is get into the debates right now, because that would, that would do what, what Jesus is avoiding here and what we need to avoid as well. We don't need to debate right and wrong here. We'll get... We'll get through that in a minute. Thank you for your contribution. Um, No one who has ever been through it, and I have not, no one who has ever been through it will tell you that divorce is good. Maybe that it has released me from something bad so that my life is better now than it was before, but never that the experience of divorce was a positive experience. This is actually Jesus' answer. He says, 
God didn't make us for divorce. God made us for faithfulness and for peace and for joy. And so he goes back to the Genesis story of creation to kind of make this point. And he says, wherever those things exist, let no person, no law get in the way of it, for that would be to hinder the kingdom of God. We don't get to hear the Pharisees' response to Jesus, as is also often the case in Scripture. But the next scene has Jesus and his disciples alone in a house, and Mark's telling of the story says that they, they ask him again about this matter. And this is where Jesus actually starts to get provocative. Up to this point, he's basically just kind of been scolding the Pharisees for caring more about laws than about the people for whom the law exists. But with his disciples, as is characteristic of Jesus, he goes to greater lengths to explain the meaning behind his words because the disciples are now the representatives of the kingdom and the reign of God on earth. As Jesus is one with the heart of God, so too must the disciples learn to be. And so he says to them this, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You know, because that clears it up, right? Uh, Those are probably the hardest words for me in this whole passage. And yet, they are also where I find a particularly helpful uh, clue. That if we remember our context of first century kind of Palestine area... Um, should stand out to us. Jesus includes this example of a woman divorcing her husband. And while it's not totally unheard of at the time, it is certainly not the norm. And so Jesus' words function to do something really, really incredible here. They remind us that regardless of cultural status, all persons in committed relationship have power. And all persons in committed relationship are vulnerable to the power of the other. Though this particular first century world may understand women as as merely property to be taken and discarded at the whims of the more powerful man, the kingdom and the reign of God holds up the full humanity of woman right next to that of man. As vulnerable as a woman is to the prospect of being hurt by divorce, so too is a man vulnerable to being hurt because marriage, and by extension divorce, isn't about property and it isn't at its core about law. It's about covenant. And for the God of Israel, covenant always takes place on a level playing field even when it's between humans and God. Now notice the difference between the Pharisees' question And Jesus' words to his disciples. The Pharisees say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus doesn't really waste time explaining to the Pharisees what he knows they won't accept. But for the disciples, the true heart of God must be made known. Within the kingdom of God, adultery isn't considered a sin because somebody's property has been taken. But because a covenant has been broken. Even... Remember the context. Even a woman who's understood as property has the relational power to deeply wound anyone who enters into the marriage covenant with her. Because a commitment of this seriousness has the power to change even the most hard-hearted of men. And thanks be to God that it does because this is the relationship and the commitment that God enters into with us. 
we shouldn't let it slip by unnoticed (laughs) that nowhere in either of these scenes does Jesus actually prohibit divorce. He instead acknowledges its existence, and you could even say its necessity. What Jesus says with the Pharisees and even more clearly with his disciples is what any person who has had to suffer through a divorce already knows all too well, that it is terribly painful. That in divorce, people hurt one another. That it should always be approached with seriousness. With the seriousness of covenant in mind. And that what is ultimately at stake can't be adequately responded to with legal argument. But it requires a community that has been changed by the grace-giving reign of God. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are that community. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to make manifest the kingdom of God wherever we go. And that necessarily begins with the acknowledgement that all of us are broken people. Cut off from our God and from one another. This is the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Divorce is real. And sometimes it is really the only or the best option that two people have. But divorce is also always a tragedy. But it's not a tragedy because a law has been broken. It's a tragedy because a person has been broken. A covenant has been broken. A relationship has been broken. A love, a heart has been broken. If if we allow for divorce... We must not ever, as the Pharisees, depersonalize it and make it only about law and interpretation. But if we as a church forbid divorce, then we put the law before the people, and that can never be interpreted as gospel. Instead, as our God has come to us precisely in our brokenness, has allowed himself to be broken with us and for us, we are called not to shun our broken brothers and sisters, but to invite and to sit with them at Christ's table. For we all have been broken. We all have broken relationships. And we all, regardless of our current family situations, have been invited to be part of a new family. Jesus has said, in my Father's house are many rooms. And he has also given us ample reason to believe that one of those rooms is a dining room. At God's dinner table, we never dine alone, but with brothers and sisters and lovers. We also dine with those who have betrayed us and with those whom we have betrayed. We dine with friends and with enemies because God's feast is one of healing, healing wounds, restoring life. As Alan mentioned, today is World Communion Sunday, and as we approach the table, I want us to leave with this thought. In the breaking and giving of Christ's body, we are quite paradoxically gathered together and unified. In the pouring out of the blood, we are given new life. Family of God, it is dinner time.